whether we're talking about business, wellness, travel, or relationships. I've always thought age is just a number. Welcome to Ageless with me, Cynthia Raleigh, and my daughter, Kit Keenan. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Ageless. So this week, we are super excited. We have Rebecca Minkoff on the podcast. Obviously, I'm sure you all know Rebecca, and you have seen her signature bags that everyone wears. But I was actually invited to a dinner for Rebecca and the brand, and I met her, and she is just so incredible. And my mom was also invited to the dinner and we were talking about how amazing it is that there's this sense of camaraderie that is beginning to just be fostered in the fashion industry in recent years. And I think she is one designer that completely embraces that. And this conversation is great. We talk a lot about changes in the fashion industry since my mom and Rebecca started. And I basically interviewed both of them. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Let us know your thoughts as always. And follow us on Instagram at Ageless Podcast. Leave us a review on Apple and we will see you next week. To start off, maybe we can kind of go off of our dinner the other night. We're so excited to have you. Maybe we could start off. You guys can talk a little bit about the changes that you've seen in the fashion industry recently in this spirit of collaboration that I definitely see on the rise. Yeah, the spirit of collaboration in fashion. I feel like it's gotten so much better and open and and kind of like happier in the fashion world. I don't know, I could be wrong, maybe it's just how I feel, but I don't know if you feel the same. I definitely feel like it's much more inclusive. You know, I go back to in my 20s when I came to New York and it was like very elitist to be invited and part of things and I think social has really helped break that down, but I also I agree with you. I think that Like people can't take it so seriously, you know, I don't know if you feel the same way. Just like more more people are allowed, you know, more different viewpoints, body types, types of designers is just makes things to me more interesting. Yeah. It used to be such like to be a designer was such an elite group. And now everyone's doing collabs and everyone's coming out with merch and their own designs. And I think it's really exciting and really fun. I just think Generally, there's so much more fun in the fashion industry. What do you guys think caused that? Like, I I understand what you're saying in the sense that kind of anyone, not anyone, but I'm just saying like the barrier to entry to the fashion industry has definitely become, has lessened and it's become a little bit more accessible to be a designer, to be invited to shows. And I wonder what, cause that change? Like, is it technology? Is it social media? I think for me, it was social media broke 
broke down. You know, it used to be this closed. I never showed it, Brian Parkinson. I don't know if you did, but it used to be like this. You were only an editor or a buyer that could get in. And then once bloggers and social media erupted, it was like the consumer got to play and weigh in and she got to be a part of the dialogue. Yeah, I I agree. hundred percent. Yeah, we did. You know, we always we showed up Bryant Park since the first shows they had there. And it was always scary. And I, you know, was always a, like afraid of everyone who was attending. <laughs> basically. Yes. And, and now it's really fun to have a show or or have an event because it's all people that you know and you love or you're excited to meet because you've seen them on social or whatever. And I agree that it's it's definitely social that's helped all that. I recently was working with someone for PR and they were literally like, I don't understand. You have 1,400 influencers on your show list and hardly any editors. And I was like, yeah, because that's who I want to come, you know, not that I don't want editors, but it's just different now. It's just way more inclusive and broader audience. Yeah. I I think they're definitely Rebecca to what you were saying earlier. Like the focus is so much more on the consumer now before I think it was kind of like the designer, like pointing and saying, you know, this is going to be the new style of the season. And, and this you're going to wear it whether you like it or not. Yeah, kind <laughs> of, basically. And now it's like so much more because of review culture, I think also like the consumer definitely has more of a say in what gets created. And I think I'm, and I'm sure you guys deal with this too. It's like, now you have to think about towing this line between being creative and outside of the box with your designs, but also paying attention to what sells. And I think sometimes what sells is like, maybe not the most outside of the box style or color or whatever it is. And I think that's kind of like an interesting dynamic that comes about in review culture. It's like, well, I can't just make little black dresses. And how do you break outside of like the items that are just that you just know, oh, this is black or this is like a very flattering quote unquote shape that I know is going to sell? And how do you like push yourself to still be creative outside of that? I feel like it's this line of art versus commercial. Mm -hmm. And you could be the designer that's in the ivory tower and only create those things. And then never have any money to do anything. And then it's like finding that. (laughs) And that can be nice if you're okay with that. Um, Or you find enough. I think Rodarte is a great example. Like their dresses and gowns are amazing, but only 1% of women can wear them if that. And then you have these incredible sweatshirts that they make that is probably their bread and butter. So it's finding like, what about your brand can be commercialized to pay the bills? And that's the meat or I don't know, that's the potato. And then the meat is your gowns or, I mean, we don't do gowns, but let's just say our, our core handbags. And then we have our fluff that we know we won't sell a lot of, but it ro- it's that romance that I think, you know, you have to have with her. Do you have a signature piece that you would say is totally your brand? 
I mean, right now our best-selling style is this ED bag and it has our signature dog hook. It has quilting that we become known for and it has chain, which, you know, the first bag to really hit outside of the morning after had this chain on it. I think that would be probably the best example of what people know and look for. And then over COVID, one of our sweatshirts, the Janine sweatshirt, it had like these puff shoulders. I just think that Zoom contributed to every girl wanting to have a, you know, be cozy in a sweatshirt, but look cute. And so that um, became like this hit that we were like, oh, we had, we had no idea that that was going to be a thing. But okay, good. That's totally like for you, the t-shirt dress. Well, yeah. I mean, I think just things evolve sometimes. Like if you have a winner and then you think, how else can I interpret this item or this feeling about that people are getting from this? Or, you know, like it, it, there's an evolution sometimes to the to the real winners. I loved, and I was obsessed with your scuba pants. Oh, they're back. Did you know they're back? I did not know that they're back, but I was like, (laughs) I love them. And I was so excited to wear them. And I wore it. I wore them to death until I split them open after trying to fit it in them after, after a baby. But (laughs) (laughs) actually, I think I might have seen you in those. Yeah, now instead of being skinny, they're like kind of flare. But yeah, let's trade because you have so many cute things on your site too. So I'll trade anytime. Deal. Our listeners know my mom's backstory getting into fashion and like how she found her love for fashion. But I'm wondering if you could take us back to kind of like the beginning of your career, maybe your first like dipping your toe into the fashion industry and what made you fall in love with it? Yeah. I mean, my first taste of liking fashion in general was when I was eight and I just wanted a dress and my mom and I were out shopping and she said, no, but I'll teach you how to sew. And no eight-year-old wants to hear that. I have a seven and 10-year-old and they both don't want to hear, I'll teach you how. But when she did teach me how, I was incredibly excited. And as I got better and I made my bat mitzvah dress and then my prom dress, my graduation dress, I went to performing arts high school for design. I just loved the idea that I could take matters into my own hands and have an idea and make it. And I think that as lots of people are bullied for whatever, but to be bullied all the time for being too skinny, which I should have said, thank you so much. Um, I, I had to make a lot of my own clothes. They just didn't fit or I would go to thrift stores and, and, you know, sort of rip everything apart and put it back together. That gave me so much confidence. And so I think that's when I said, okay, there's something here for me. Do you ever still sew? No, my machine that had like done eight moves with me fell out of the moving truck and smashed into tiny pieces, which it was time. It was time for that baby to go. Yeah. (laughs) That's a metaphor of some kind. (laughs) I know, right? And no, I have not. I just haven't had the time. I would love to though. I used to know that no matter what, I'd always be sewing someone's Halloween costume. That was like, okay, if I don't sew any other time of the year, I know Halloween I'll be sewing, but yeah, they don't dress up anymore. No, all of you (laughs) made all of my Halloween costumes this year. I'm interested because I think, and this is a little bit of a tangent, I guess, but it's interesting to hear there's a lot of powerful, inspiring people that have a similar story where it's like, I kind of knew when I was young, this is my calling. And I'm wondering, like, 
raising kids, if there's, cause I, I personally, I don't think I ever really had something like that. I was always interested in like many things and always creating and doing little projects to the side, but there was never like one thing for me that I was like, when I grow up, I want to be a scientist or like whatever it was. And I wonder if when you guys are both raising your children, like, is there a way to foster that passion? Or is it kind of just like you follow your heart and like, see what happens and see, like, how do you create in a child that feeling of like, I know what it is that I want to do? I want to hear your answer first, Cynthia, because you, you've already raised young adults and I am, I'm struggling with my, my answer, but I'll share it. I mean, it's like that moment when your mom said, I'll teach you how to sew. Like, that's so brilliant. If she never said that, would you be who you are today? You know, that's that's a question, I think. I know, it's a hard <laughs> question. I I feel like I exposed you to a lot of different interests, yeah. art and fashion and sports and, you know, just let you find your path. But I don't know if that's the best way. Yeah. Well, I think it's okay not not to have something that was like, oh my gosh, this is my thing. Because now I have so many different interests and skills and like I, I'm more of a well-rounded than like an expert. And a lot of times I would love to be an expert in something, but I think that like part of even this podcast, for example, is me like learning from many different experts and hearing their stories on how they found their passion. But I think it's a similar, like, it's a similar story that we hear where it's like, I knew from when I was a child. The thing that I, that I find that is tough is my kids, I'm trying to pattern the way that I was taught, which was my mom said no all the time. And I either had to work for everything I wanted. I had to earn the money to get it or I had to learn how to do it. Just stuff that every, like, that I feel like even trickles into most kids, like their, their, their parents at least fill out their camp paperwork or register them for school. My parents were like, nah, if you want to do it. (laughs) Did we have the parents? (laughs) (laughs) Right. But it really made me incredible at how to figure stuff out. So I always had this confidence of like, oh, I'll figure it out. I don't know the answer today. But I swear to, if I could swear, uh, I swear to God that I'm doing the same things to my kids and they don't care. They're just like, meh, never mind. If my daughter wants something, I say no. She's like, okay, fine. (laughs) And then I'm like, "Uh, okay, so I guess you won't earn it. Or, you know, like they just, I don't know. And, And someone's like, well, their bar is so much higher. Like, they're, they know where their food is coming from. They know they're going to have a, a home to sleep in. I'm like, I knew where my food was coming in or had a home to sleep in. I still worked my butt off. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know how did to do it. Up? Where did you grow up? I grew up in San Diego. That's pretty cosmopolitan, I guess. I'm just yeah, thinking I mean, it's not small you know. town versus city kids, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's a hard one. Yeah. I think you can't, you can't ever push your kids to do something because they'll reject it or they'll resent you later or who knows, you know, I don't know. There's so, there's so many things that are hard about being a parent. 
Yeah. I mean, my daughter is seven, but has an incredible, just natural skill for dance and has the body and the turnout and the toes, like everything that you like, if you want to succeed, like has the base and she's really great at it and she won't do it anymore. And it's just like, I could force her. And I just like, I'm not going to force her. If she regrets it later, I'll be like, I tried. I don't know. I I never like to force kids into stuff. Yeah. I have one that is a musician and she'll never play a note if I'm in the room. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway. So I want to switch gears a little bit only because I think the first time I really knew who you were, it was years ago, of course. And you really were like on the forefront of technology in fashion And I remember thinking like, oh, damn, I better get my shit together. Like, it was really like, I mean, you always have been really forward thinking, you know, in that part of the business. And I'm sure during the last year and a half, that really was important, you know, because that's the only way you could reach your audience. So I'm just wondering about, early on how you embrace that and, and, you know, you're thinking on that and, and kind of just like what you're excited about in the future. Yeah. So I think early on, a lot of the technology and that innovation was truly driven by my brother. He was sort of the software guy turned fashion CEO. And so he could apply a lot of that data and knowledge, but I'm a quick study And I think as I began to see how our consumer was embracing technology, it was never from this idea of let's just do it to be flashy, but let's like ease the the consumer's journey at some point. And so I think for us, what we're most excited about right now and what's a very buzzy word is how NFTs are shaping shopping behavior and habits and and what's happening in the metaverse, which is this internet 3.0, whatever you want to call it, uh, where people are going to be engaging and have their own avatars and want to dress them. And of course, they're going to only want to wear Cynthia Rowley and Rebecca Minkoff in the the metaverse. (laughs) You know, for us, we did a small experiment last Fashion Week where we had about six garments, six outfits for sale as NFTs and garments. There was about 300 that we, we made available and they were gone in nine minutes. And we didn't even promote it. It was, it was through one newsletter through the dematerialized their mailing list and it sold out. And I was like, oh my gosh, there, there is a whole new world of people who just, they're not going to want factual clothing. They just want to buy it digitally or have the clothing be a filter. They can take their selfie, but they buy the filter skin for 10 bucks instead of the outfit for 300. And so the designer can still benefit and be part of this economy. And she needs to sell a lot more $10 filters than $300 dresses. But I think there is a, there's an economy and a universe there that designers are going to be able to play in, in, in really creative ways. I'm really excited about it too, about NFTs and making these superhero avatars and, and all that. No, I think it's really, really exciting. It's scary a little bit, and it's definitely something that you, you have to be really curious about because it's a lot to learn but I think it's really exciting and much more sustainable I think it's interesting because I think there's a little bit of a shift also and like a desire for younger people getting into the industry 
for the old industry that they miss out on. And I see this so much in like in young influencer crowd that I'm friends with in New York. Everyone wants to go to runway shows and everyone wants to go to these big fashion galas that happen every year. And there's like almost a desire for what you guys are kind of running from and like innovating away from, you know? And I think it's interesting because... I know, I wish that wasn't true. (laughs) Well, I... Because runway shows are... Yeah, I mean, I, I think like there needs to just be a different way to engage that audience. But I mean, I remember back to the Bryant Park thing a little bit, like when you were first like, I'm not doing it there anymore. And you were like, okay, we're going to change the setting. We're going to change your first presentation. I remember being so like crazy and outside of the box at the time. And I'm wondering, Rebecca, what your thoughts are on runway shows, if you will ever do a runway show again. And if there's anything that's like still romantic about that idea to you guys. I will do a runway show if I have a collection that I'm selling that is worthy of that experience that I feel like is only evoked when you have a little bit of fantasy. I think if my apparel and handbags for the most part is for a woman to wear every day, I don't know that it, it should ever be on a runway. Interesting. Yeah. It is exciting to have a show or see a show. Yeah. I get why younger people are excited about it. I think also like, for example, I went to the pretty little thing show during this past fashion week. And it's not like Pretty Little Thing makes like, it's not like I'm seeing like Alexander McQueen, like level of garments walking down the runway. I mean, it's a lot of like sweatsuits and puffer coats and stuff like that, simple garments, but it's, it was more about the show for them and like the performance. And I think there's still something about that where it's like not it's not even about the clothes anymore it's about the the energy the energy yeah that I think should be done and I think that opens it up for anyone to do something like we did it we did a little gallery show and everyone came and the social shares were incredible and people had a good time like I think that that for sure is something that could be done and should be done by designers Yeah, I think you're creating an experience like the dinner you had the other night. You're curating an experience for people. And that's the most important thing is that experience is authentic to you and your brand. And basically that everybody has a great time. Yeah. I mean, that that seems like a modern way to think about it. I don't know. I think also there's a big there weren't as many shows this year as there have been like pre-pandemic because of the changes to the seasonal calendar. And I think people are just like doing smaller jobs and aren't making huge collections. So I'm wondering what you guys think about those changes and how it's not like the same calendar that it was when you started in the business. How do you think about that, Cynthia? I'm curious to know. 
I don't really pay attention to that. I mean, we ship like once or twice a week new product. And I just think that's like a cooler way to keep your audience engaged. And I think you you do sort of the same thing where you're shipping year round all the time and introducing new product whenever you want to, you know, I don't, I just never understood the idea of like showing your collection and then it all ships at the same time to the retailer, whatever, nobody shops like that. And so inevitably it starts to look stale and then people are bored. And then there's the whole thing about you have a show and you show something, but then by the time it actually ships, people are like, Oh, I saw that six months ago. You know, it just never really added up to me. I don't know. I th- I think you feel the same. Yeah, I, I want to witness. <laughs> no, no, no. I think I think the only thing that that makes that calendar so specific has has notoriously been like selling to a wholesaler who, in the past, wanted the three months all at once so that they had enough selling time on the floor so that someone can dig through like eight hundred designers. 150 piece collections, but I think that now they've even changed. And I think they're even more open to the idea of these little drops, like we'll ship you every other week. And I think the customer, like she's refreshing her Instagram feed a hundred million times a day. And so she wants her clothing options to be like that. So even if a designer has everything ready, she's smarter to sort of trickle it out in different drops. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Wait, do you still do wholesale or it's mostly just your own? We still do wholesale. Wholesale was like 70% of our business pre-COVID. Then it went to zero. And now we're we're back up. But I think we're going to try and have a healthier balance of like 50-50. For our listeners who have no clue what you guys are talking about, can <laughs> we explain it? <laughs> yes. When we say wholesale, it's like Saks, Neiman Marcus, Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's stores that buy from you versus direct to consumer. And why do you think there has been kind of a shift away from those, from wholesale? I think it's just this next wave of innovation. You know, coffee used to be this thing that like plumbers drank, you know, like, and now it's this artisan thing with special spouts. And I think that wholesale was innovative and selling to these stores was an innovative activity starting in the fifties, but then direct to consumer became this new thing. And people just wanted to have that direct relationship with the brand. And then I think that once a brand has that direct relationship with their customer, they're like, why do I have a middleman again? I can get all this data. I can talk to her. I can make offers to her. My margins are better. So I think it just became sort of a no brainer. Got it. Yeah, I think so too. I think it just like the idea that you create the product, you ship it to the retailer or a buyer has to buy it. So that throws up one first filter, then has to get to the store and then someone has to walk in that store. And of all the sea of merchandise, <laughs> you know, they have to choose your piece and buy your piece. And it just seems so attenuated in a way that like the odds just kept getting less and less that you would actually sell it. And now it's just so much more and there was never any analytics or data on what you were selling. So you were just like, uh, 
I think pink is a good color, you know, but you would never really know exactly what the information was that you were getting. You know, there wasn't feedback like like we have now. Mm. And for younger listeners who might be thinking about starting their own brand, do you guys think there needs to be like a star product or a signature product? Or where do you think there's space in the industry right now for people that are wanting to start out? Who wants to go first? <laughs> I didn't know I was getting interviewed. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I didn't know if you wanted both of us to answer. No, I'm I, happy to. You know, I, it's sweet because I think we both have the same perspective on things, but accessories were always a really important part of your brand, I think, especially as a signature. I always think of your beautiful bags. And now I feel like that would be a really hard thing to start with, but I don't know. I agree. I think that, and again, I feel like everything is cyclical, but it's hard to, to, it's easy to start a handbag brand. It's going to be hard to scale and grow it without a lot of money. And I think we've seen, you know, brands that launched after, let's say, you know, I launched with the brands that Kit, I'm going to guarantee you probably don't even know about like Foley and Karina, Botkir, Kuba, Gusto. That was my class that I launched with. And when I started, Kuba was a $25 million brand and Botkir was like pretty close to that. Um, and we were all in the same showroom with the lady who launched Kate Spade. And all that there existed at that time was Tori, Kate, Michael, Mark. And so we got to all play in that sphere. And then one after the other, for whatever reason, uh, you know, stopped being around. And then it was just me. And then I got permission to play. But then you saw like other brands start, start and stop. And they're the cool flavor of the month. But then they could never grow beyond a certain point. So it, it is hard. And I think that comes with huge investment and in like really being able to, it's one thing for a woman to buy a 50, $95 shirt. She can wear it for a little bit and throw it away or, or whatever, or sell it. I think it's different when she's like electing to be telling everyone, this is the bag that I have. And so I think that's a much more considered purchase. And she has to trust that someone's going to know that she bought X brand. Even if it's hidden and subtle, like my logo, I, it's in the back, but you still know by the dog hook or the tassels or the zippers that it's my bag. And so I think that she's still on some level looking for the recognition that she put her $295 in the right spot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also think kind of the boring part of this whole discussion is the supply chain and how and inventory control and things like that, that if you're making handbags, I would think the lead times are longer and the investment is greater. And so therefore the possibility of something going wrong, meaning not go, running through inventory fast enough, getting stuck with, I don't know. I just think something to think about for younger people thinking about starting a collection is what's your supply chain like and what are the lead times and how quickly does the inventory get stale and aged and, you know, like all those kind of back office things mm -hmm. kind of do sort of depend on what you choose to start with. 
Oh, for sure. I think, I think that it, it just, it, there's a bar to, I would say to anyone starting today, pick one thing, do it well, become the best at that. I mean, for me, it was the morning after bag. That's all I had. I mean, I had a small apparel line before that, but I became known for the morning after bag and that's all I did for a year. And I was like, I offer it in 50 colors, but this is all I have. And so I think that if people want to stand out, like don't try and be in everything to anyone. Like what, what should they come to you for? What do you stand for? Why is she electing you as part of her tribe? And then once you're known and you have like a solid foothold, then, you know, launch, launch something else. And, you know, I think it's, it's better to do that smartly than just like, I have to be a big designer with like a whole entire collection and denim and shoes and jewelry. It could just be really overwhelming. Yeah. And just, it's, again, it's like a big investment in inventory because you don't know, no one has the crystal ball to know what's going to be the winner. But if you're, you know, narrow with your selection, then that's what you keep replenishing and that's what you evolve with. I genuinely think there are very few brands starting now that are using that that model where it's like apparel and access, like everything off the bat. Like think about skims, for example. It's like it started just as shapewear. And yes, now they do like dresses and stuff like that. But it's like, that is the thing. That's it. That's all they do. They don't do anything. Like they're not doing anything else. And if you want to do something else, if you want to do a bag, for example, then you do a collab with somebody. And then that's kind of how like you can test product categories that you might not have the supply chain or the infrastructure to just start out like and just make, you know? I love that. I think that's, that's what keeps things exciting. Like we just did a collaborate. Well, we've done several, we've, we've probably done too many this year, but we like, we did a collaboration with Sperry and, you know, we have a, a collaboration coming out tomorrow. And it just, it's just like these fun little moments where I'm never going to make a better boat shoe slash lounge shoe that would compete or to be better than a Sperry. So go to the, go to them directly. If I yeah. was ever going to surf, but I'm too scared of sharks. I would only do a collaboration with Cynthia and get in this way in the, in the scuba gear and my surf, my surf look, which I pretend that I look cool, but I'm not going to go out on the board. You don't need to, you can just look great on the beach. Well, that's how the wetsuit was born too, was with the collab with Roxy. And then you figured out, okay, this could also be part of my brand did it on your own, then re did the collaboration with Roxy. And I think that's like, that's a great way for young designers to test new categories because it's like, you go to the best, you find the person that already has all the kinks in making the physical garment and has the audience that wants to buy that garment or that item. And you can just kind of like add your flair to it and see if your brand like meshes with that, with that other brand. Totally. A whole new audience. Yeah. That, that to me is the exciting thing. Like each collaboration, right. You're like Sperry must have a totally different audience than yours. And that's exciting to be introduced to, you know, it's like going to a party where you don't know anyone and you get to, meet everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. 
What's your dream collab? I like to think about, I guess, things that would never be associated with us. I mean, I think I love the idea of a Supreme collab. What they just did with Tiffany's was so, so cool and unexpected. And for the first time in, I think, forever, I was like, I want something from Tiffany's. Yeah. But I also love Birkenstock. We had a couple of conversations about potentially doing something, but they're their their calendar speaking of calendar is 3 years out so i was like cool we're about 6 months out so <laughs> let me know when you've come up for air and i you can slot me in for 2030 <laughs> yeah that's funny what about no, you i mean i have lots i have lots they usually involve some daring death defying activity <laughs> doing the snow stuff was that was really cool. Motorcycle gear next. Yeah, I do. Ooh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. That would be really Race cool. Race car driving, driver gear. Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's, I do think, I agree that it's really exciting to go outside of your ken. And as far as like, this is my girl. And then you're like, oh, well, here's somebody totally different that, can kind of mesh the two together and you get this mashup of like, you know, a whole new element, you know, it's like just being able to introduce something new to your audience that maybe they didn't, wouldn't have thought. Yeah. yeah. Going off that, what creates hype? Oh my God. Rebecca, you're better at this. I think there are for every industry, there are certain leaders of the pack even now. And I think when you have all those people, which one day when I have all the time in the world, I'll be like, if A, B, C, and D were X, then it equals whatever. I think that when you get like those people talking plus the right, if anyone reads magazines or goes online anymore, you know, the right publications talking about it with a couple of like followed by some good news stories and maybe some micro influencers all talking about it. I think that can happen. But then other times, like I think with like a Supreme, like they've just created this culture of drops and sellout and, and lack of supply. And so as much as a designer, when they have a hit wants to like pour everything into like, let's make as many as we can. Like the minute you do that, it loses value. And so I think it's that, like holding back scarcity, scarcity type with the right people and the element of surprise I would add in there. Maybe. Yeah. Scarcity. Okay. Scarcity is luxury. Scarcity is hype. Yeah. You should make that t-shirt, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't, talked about? So I came out with a book in June. It's called Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. And I really wrote it from having a perspective. And I feel so ancient, as I say this, of being in the industry for 20 years. And it was really just all about the sort of things you can hang on to when you are so scared, you don't know if you should make the decision. Should you take the risk? Should you not? Should you go after your dream or should you not? And so by no means is it a mental health book, even though I, I call it fearless. You're not going to be cured of your fear afterwards, but you're just going to plow into 
whatever you're doing really scared anyways. And so the goal is it doesn't hold you back. And so for anyone, whether they're a founder or an entrepreneur, just anyone looking to get ahead, I think, you know, simple rules that you can just apply to your life to hopefully be more successful. I love that. That's fantastic. I just heard a great quote this weekend from Jimmy Chin, who is the guy that won the Oscar for his movie, Free Solo. And he said, whatever it is you want to do, commit to it and then figure it out. And it's really simple, but it really kind of resonated with me that you commit first and then you figure it out. And it sort of sounds like your book and your message and the fearlessness that all of this takes is kind of perfect for that. I love that. So one question we ask all of our guests on Ageless is what do you want to be when you grow up? And we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So it's ironic that you asked that because at the dinner that you were just at, the other table was going around and everyone had to answer, what do you want for yourself in 10 years? And I said, I want to have a little sandwich shop in Greece and my husband will sell the scooters and we'll make you these really great picnic baskets (laughs) to go around and, and have some picnic on some like Mamma Mia type mountain. And this girl that works with me was like, I just said I wanted to be president of your company in 10 years. And if you're not going to be around, then what the hell is the point of me working with you? (laughs) I was like, I'm sorry. Can you do that in year five? And then by in 10 years from now, we can both be making sandwiches. And people were like, that's all you want for your, that's all you want for yourself. I was like, it sounds kind of epic and stress-free. I don't know. What should I want? A bigger car? Like, I don't know that. So that's my answer. I yeah, I think it's about like fantasy and escape and travel. And I love that answer. Well, thank you. It sounds like a good one. To me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always say if I didn't live in New York, I would want to live like in, you know, Bali or some, you know, like far away, really remote. That's not that remote, but somewhere far away that I could just be on the beach and surf and hang out. Yeah. Never wear shoes. Yeah. That's like the energy of New York where it's just like, oh my God, it's about to crush me. And I need to just like dip. Like I need to just (laughs) leave and get out of here. Um, And I totally, I get that from you guys. Well, thank you so much. Thank you both. Cause I honestly interviewed you both. Um, But I think this episode is going to be super helpful for our younger listeners who want to get into fashion. So and get the, buy the book. So Thank you. Thank you. Hope you guys love this episode. And thanks so much to Ginny Media for our audio production. All right. So I'm so happy that you guys got to listen to our stories today. As always, you can follow us on social media and keep up with our work and our crazy adventures. Then you can follow us on Instagram at Cynthia Rowley and at Kit Keenan. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 